0: This series has been challenging to me, and I hope that it's challenged all of us. In fact, I hope that I hope that we never get to a point in our lives, as we seek to follow Jesus and to learn about Him and to see who Jesus really is as laid out in the Scriptures, I hope we never get to a point where we're just satisfied with what we know and how we're doing and how we're living our lives. Because it's really easy, when this stuff kind of gets ingrained in our mind, and we think, well, I pretty much know who Jesus is, and I think I'm living a life that's pretty consistent with Jesus, it's pretty easy to read the scriptures and not to allow them to challenge us on a fundamental level. And I think that we need to. We need to allow ourselves to see Jesus a little bit more clearly. Who is he? What is he claiming about himself? What sort of a life is consistent with saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, and what sort of life is inconsistent with that? And if you find that the way that you're living doesn't really match up with the claim to be a follower of Jesus the Christ, do you have the courage and the boldness to change? To say, you know what? Jesus wants something different from me. Will we allow ourselves to be challenged? I hope so. As we wrap up this series, come and see. We're, we're accepting Philip's invitation. John, the one who wrote this gospel account, we're accepting the invitation to come and see Jesus. Come and see who he is. Wrestle with your questions about him. And then come to a conclusion. Who is Jesus? And will you or will you not choose to follow him? I heard a story this week. I have no idea if it's, it's true or not, but it's a good illustration anyway. Uh, but it was reported as true. There was a 12-year-old girl in Ethiopia who was kidnapped by seven terrible men, and she was taken captive out to a place where nobody could hear her crying. No people, that is, could hear her crying, because apparently, according to the story, three Ethiopian lions heard the little girl crying, and they came in and chased the men off. Now, that's not really surprising, because that's what lions do. They chase people, kill people, whatever, and people run away when they see a lion. But what is surprising is that according to the story, they circled the girl and they sat down and they created a perimeter around her and guarded her. And then when police showed up, the lions just wandered off and went away and let them take the girl. A pretty amazing story. But it reminded me of of the way that people of old used to think about kings. See, because those lions did what people hoped that kings would do for them. They really hoped that kings would be warriors on their behalf. They hoped that they would accomplish at least two things. One, that they would defeat their enemies, chase our enemies off, kill them, whatever, defeat our enemies, and then provide security and safety for us. That's what they hoped kings would do. And and often the illusion is we need to get a really big beast, a ferocious beast to do that kind of a job, right? Because they have to chase off or defeat really big ferocious beasts. So we need a beast of our own who's got bigger teeth and sharper claws to come in and defeat our enemies and protect us from the beast's In the world, it reminds me of the Lion King. Y'all saw Lion King? Uh, So so in the Lion King, Timon and Pumbaa, they're out in the desert and they find this little lion cub, right, Simba? And he's laying there. And Pumbaa wants to, the, the warthog, wants to keep Simba and take him home. And Timon rightly says, but lions eat guys like us, right? That's smart. Lions eat guys like us. But then they both start to wrestle with this question that we all wrestle with. But... What if he's on our side, right? What if he's on our side? What if we take this lion home and now when another lion comes, we've got a lion of our own and he's gonna have bigger teeth and sharper claws. He can defeat our enemies and protect us. See, that's what human beings have always done. We get scared of the forces of darkness in the world, the beasts in the world, and we say, we need a beast of our own we need to fight fire with fire. If there's sharp teeth and sharp claws in the world, we need a beast who has bigger teeth and sharper claws to come in and defeat our enemies and protect us from the evil in the world. That, that's, what, that's what human beings have always done. We've always said, I need a king who will be my warrior and defeat my enemies, and he will be an even bigger beast than theirs are. But the problem with giving your loyalty to a ferocious beast is that now you have to live with a ferocious beast and many times in fact eventually always they turn on you that's what happens that's the history of humanity that is the story of our world isn't it in fact that's the story of israel do you remember israel was supposed to be a unique a unique kingdom a unique nation that didn't have a beast to go and tear people apart. Their shepherd was Yahweh. Their shepherd was God. And who needs a beast when you have a shepherd? Who needs to hire a lion to come and guard the sheep when you have a shepherd to guard the sheep? See, but Israel got to a point where they didn't trust the shepherd. They didn't trust God to shepherd them. They said, but we want a beast like everybody else that wants a beast. We want a king like everybody else has a king. We want a king that has bigger teeth and sharper claws. And that will fight our battles for us. We don't want God to shepherd us because that's hard. That's hard to trust in this unseen shepherd to take care of us and defeat our enemies. It'd be so much easier if we could have somebody that we could see that would tear our enemies apart. And so they asked for a king. And do you remember Samuel, who was the prophet of God at the time? He warned them and said, don't go down this road. You have a shepherd. God is your king. Don't go down this road. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, or chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8. This is Samuel's warning to the people when they asked for a king. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself. Commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks. When I read that in first service, he will take the tenth of your flocks. There was a little girl and she was coloring. She thought I said a tenth of your blocks. And she looked up and said, he's going to take my blocks? Not not blocks, so flocks. He will take the tenth of your flocks and listen to this. You shall be his slaves. And in that day, you'll cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Do do you remember? That's what happened. They, They found a king who looked the part, right? I mean, he was taller, head and shoulders taller than other men. Yes, here's our beast, and he's got bigger teeth and sharper claws. He'll come in and fight our battles. He'll defeat our enemies. He'll protect us and provide for us. Do you remember when he went up against Goliath? And he was supposed to go out there and be who they asked him to be. He wanted somebody else to go in his place, didn't he? And he went the way of every other king. Because that's what happens when you say, God, I don't want you to shepherd me. I want a beast of my own who will go out to battle for me. And then you have to live with the beast. Now, here's what Samuel warned. He said, listen, this is what's going to happen. He's going to take advantage of you. He's going to make you his slaves. And God won't hear you when you say, oops, we shouldn't have done that. But thankfully, God did hear them. And he ended the dynasty of Saul. And then do you remember he raised up someone else? A man who was a man, but he was a man after God's own heart. And he said, we're going to have a different sort of relationship. That this man who was... David, David and God were going to partner together to shepherd the people of Israel together. Because David was a man who allowed God to shepherd him. And so he would partner with God. And God, amazingly, would partner with this human being to shepherd the people of Israel. And it was supposed to be a dynasty that would go on and on, generation after generation. The descendants of David partnering with God to shepherd the people of Israel. Look at 2 Samuel chapter seven and verse 12. Here's God's promise to David through the prophet Nathan. So he says, this is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we read this and we think, Solomon, right? Yeah, Solomon. And then on and on, descendant after descendant. And he says this, verse 14, I will be to him a what? A father, and he shall be to me a son. A totally different sort of relationship. A father-son relationship, a partnering. A divine and human partners going into partnership together like a father and a son, hand in hand together to shepherd the people of Israel. And God says, when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. I'm not going to do that with your son. Verse 16, and your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. I mean, isn't that a a beautiful picture? That this Davidic, descendants of David, this Davidic dynasty, that they were going to be partners together with God like a father and a son, hand in hand, shepherding the people of Israel. So much so that this, this is seen even in the songs that they would sing. When a new king of Israel or a new king of Judah, because the kingdom eventually split and then you had the descendants of David ruling over the kingdom of Judah. And when a new king was crowned, they would sing songs like this. Look at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. To, to see that the confidence in which they would place within this king because this king and God had a special father-son relationship. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the... All the the beasts of the world think they can do whatever they want to do, and they can break free from God's reign and control over them. They can't. They think that they can, but why do they think they can? And verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens, God, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Because it's futile, right? To fight against God or against God's anointed king, if the creator of the universe picks one man to say, I'm going to partner with you to shepherd my people, and then you fight against those people, or you fight against that king, you're not just fighting against human beings, you're fighting against God, because God is partnered together with them. And the Lord laughs. He holds them in derision. He'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then, It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, so this is the Lord's anointed, the Lord's king saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If there is a king with whom God is partnered, like a father and a son, God has anointed him and said, I'm going to partner with you to rule and reign, to shepherd over my people, then there's no stopping him. And if you fight against him, you will fall. And if you support him and you're behind him, then you'll be blessed because this is God's anointed one, so much so that his rule and his reign will spread over all the nations and he'll bring everybody into the kingdom of God. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And listen to this last phrase. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This, this was the idea, the promise, the hope that this Davidic line of kings would be to God like a son and he would be to them like a father and they would be partnered together to shepherd not only Israel, but eventually all the nations. But how well did that work out? Eventually, again, the kingdom split in two. Solomon, I mean, it started off really great, didn't it? I mean, Solomon, he's given the reign and the rule and, and what does he do? First thing, God says, what do you want? He says, I want what? Wisdom. I want wisdom because I've got to shepherd these people of yours. You're asking me to partner with you to shepherd the people of Israel. I can't do that unless you give me wisdom. Oh, what a great way to start. But then Solomon's reign took a nosedive. And he became like the other kings, accumulating for himself wives and idols and money and treasures and armies, just like the other beasts of the world. And then generation after generation after generation of David's descendants, you might have a a good king every now and then, but even at their best, they never lived up to this ideal that they would fully trust in God and serve God and partner together with God like a father and a son to shepherd the people to the glory of God, doing the will of the Father. It just never came to fruition. And then... Eventually, there were no kings. They went off into exile and they came back. There was no Davidic king on the throne, but there were still people in Israel who even before he showed up, they took refuge in this promise. It's hard, isn't it, to take refuge in a promise? To take refuge in an idea? To take refuge in a concept? When you've got beasts all around you, you've got You've got kingdoms and kings with big armies. They've got big teeth and sharp claws. And it's terrifying. It's hard to take refuge in this promise. God, you promised a descendant of David would sit on this throne and you would partner together with him like a father and a son to shepherd your people. And I believe that's coming true. And so many people in Israel took refuge in that promise. But many people didn't. Both in the nations who had never taken refuge in this promise and in Israel itself. Because it's really easy when the beasts are coming in to take refuge in other beasts. So some people took refuge in Caesar. Some took refuge in Rome. Some took refuge in the Herodian kings. Some took refuge even in the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin. But there were some who took refuge in this promise, I will raise up a king, and I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son, and together we will shepherd my people. Now, now let's look at John chapter 1, verse 19. And so John, the baptizer, is, is preaching, and he's baptizing people and telling people to repent. And of course, the rulers of the Jews, when John says the Jews, he doesn't mean like all the Jews. He means the rulers of the Jews. The, the rulers of the Jews are like, wait, you can't just go around saying whatever you want to say. Where, where's your credentials? You've got to present to us your credentials. You've got to, got to go through us. We're the gatekeepers. So who are you? So the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, the baptizer, who are you? He confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. He said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. They said to him, are you, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And here's what he said about himself. Quoting Isaiah 40, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, if we were to go and read Isaiah 40, you'd see that it's all about after the exile and after their punishment, that God was going to rush to comfort them, that a highway would be kind of smoothed out for God to come to his people, and shepherd them. That's what this whole story is about, isn't it? I don't want you to shepherd me. I want a beast of my own. And then suffering the consequences of that. And then God's saying, I'm going to come, and I'm going to be your shepherd. Me, myself, I'm going to come. Yahweh is going to come, and I'm going to shepherd you. And John is saying, that's my job. My job is to get things prepared for Yahweh to come and shepherd his people. I'm smoothing out the path for Yahweh to come. And shepherd his people. And then we keep reading in John chapter 1. And we read how Philip, how he figures out that Jesus is the Messiah. He went and told Nathanael about him. So Nathanael's coming towards Jesus, verse 47. And Jesus says about Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And those two phrases go hand in hand. That they mean practically the same thing. It's Psalm 2. You, you are the one. You are the one that God is going to partner with to shepherd his people. But, but here's the thing. I mean, John the baptizer is saying Yahweh is going to come and shepherd his people. And here people are expecting an anointed one, a person who is a representative of God who's going to come and shepherd his people. So which one is it? Is, is God going to come, Yahweh going to come and shepherd his people? Or is it a human being is going to come and shepherd the people on behalf of God? The answer is yes, it's, it's both. That's what it is, that Yahweh has come. The word of God has come in flesh to shepherd his people. And that Jesus, an actual human being, is the Son of God, partnering together with the Father to shepherd the people of God. Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me? You will see greater things than these. And you see, as we go through John, you'll see that this idea that there was going to be a Messiah who was the Son of God it gets infused with even greater meaning than they had any idea when they simply read Psalm 2. That Jesus would say so much that he is partnered together with God and that he is divine, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I and the Father are one. And he says, you're going to see even greater things like this, like this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Angels of God ascending and descending. Does that ring a bell? Do you remember the story of Jacob in Genesis? Jacob is sleeping on a rock and he has this vision and he sees this ladder or staircase where angels of God are ascending and descending. And he wakes up and he says, this, this spot is special. It's a place where heaven and earth come together. This is a spot that's the house of God, Bethel. This is the house of God. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. I am the house of God. I am the place where heaven and earth meet. We'll talk more about that as we go through this gospel account. And then he calls himself the son of man, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision. And he sees this heavenly figure like a son of man who's given rule and reign and dominion to rule and shepherd not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations of the earth and to defeat all of the beasts with their big scary teeth and their sharp scary claws, this son of man will bring rule, reign of God to the earth, that he will be given dominion over all things. So I'm reminded about Psalm 2 and the last phrase there that Psalm 2 says about God's anointed, his son the one with whom he will partner to rule and reign over all the nations. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so the question for us is, are we taking refuge in him? That's the next slide. Are Are we taking refuge in him? It's hard sometimes, isn't it? When the world feels like it's falling apart, on a global scale, or on a national scale, or maybe just on a personal scale, when it feels like the world is falling apart, the temptation is to act like a beast, or get a beast to act on your behalf. But the claim of the gospel is that Jesus, God's anointed one, the Son, the son who has partnered, excuse me, the Son who has partnered together with God has defeated and is defeating and will defeat every single one of our enemies, including the greatest and the last enemy which will be defeated, which is 1 Corinthians 15, death. So take refuge in him. Take refuge exclusively in him. It's very tempting, isn't it? To put our trust in worldly things, to put our trust in worldly people, to put our trust in worldly institutions, to say, come and defeat my enemies and protect me from the things that scare me. But the claim of the gospel is that Jesus has, is, and will defeat every single one of our enemies on our behalf if we put our trust in him if we take refuge in him. So here's our moment of truth. Moment of truth. How would you live your life if you truly took refuge in King Jesus? What would your life look like? Would taking refuge in King Jesus dispel some of the fears that you have? What would it look like to put your trust and your faith exclusively in King Jesus, to take refuge exclusively in him and stop trusting in the beasts, to stop saying, I need bigger teeth and sharper claws, to start believing with every fiber of your being that Jesus has defeated our enemies, not by acting like a lion, but by being a lion who became a lamb and calling us to that kind of selfless surrender and trust, taking refuge in him, believing that he has, he is, and he will defeat every enemy. That's what baptism is all about, isn't it? When we're baptized, that's what we're saying. We're saying, hide me away, O Lord. I take refuge In you, I pledge my allegiance and my loyalty exclusively to you, to King Jesus and to his kingdom, I will rest secure. But sometimes, even for those of us that have made that decision, just like Israel, they had a shepherd. And they found a beast instead because they failed to trust their shepherd. And it's easy for us, isn't it? along the way, to stop trusting our shepherd. And sometimes we need reminders like this, don't we? Trust your shepherd. Take refuge in him. Believe that he has, he is, and he will defeat every foe, every enemy. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So whether for the first time or because you need to come back to him, if you need to take refuge in Jesus, because sometimes it does feel like your world is falling apart, and it's scary. And so we're here to encourage each other to take refuge in Jesus. And if we can help you to do that this morning, in whatever way we can, come forward now as we stand and sing the song.